So we're going to go ahead and get started here this morning. Um, I passed out a handout um, just a little bit ago. If anybody did not get a copy, um, I've got a copy up here. I'll put it on the, on the table over here. People can sneak up and get it um, if they want. Uh, but welcome to Sunday School on uh, this beautiful autumn morning. And uh, we're going to be getting started. We're going to go ahead and get started here. And uh, our class this morning is on the fifth commandment. So after this morning, we will be halfway done with the Ten Commandments, right? Halfway done. Um, let me go ahead and open us in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll get started, okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we could be together this morning. We thank you for this opportunity we can have uh, before worship to come together and consider uh, the things that you have for us in your law. We pray that you would bless this time together, that uh, as the psalmist prays, you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your law. And we pray that this time would be profitable to our hearts and to your glory, for it's in uh, Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, good morning again. Um, uh, I think I know everybody, but just in case, um, I'm Mike Venzel. I'm one of the ruling elders here at the church. And so uh, this week, I'll be covering the fifth commandment. Um, Last week, uh, Lauren Clark covered the uh, fourth commandment. Uh, I think that's recorded, and I commend that treatment of the fourth commandment to you. Uh, it was uh, wonderful, and uh, uh, pastors Josh and uh, Patrick are uh, helping with the high school Sunday school this morning. Um, so I'll be with you uh, for the consideration of the fifth commandment, which is uh, a privilege of mine and, uh, and a joy. And uh, let's go ahead and get started. Um, with the fifth commandment, we are starting the second table of the law, uh, which... Uh, As you know, I'm sure everybody, the law is typically divided into the two tables, the first four commandments being the first table that considers our relationship to God, and the second table considers our relationship to to human beings, to other people. And uh, it's interesting, both commandments start, I'm sorry, both tables start with a commandment that you might think is... uh, is very contrary, runs very contrary, cuts against the grain of our modern democratic sensibilities. The first commandment is uh, essentially a commandment to religious exclusivism. You may only have one God, right? It's not how we think as Americans. And this commandment that introduces the second table is no different, right? Honor all lawfully designated authorities, right? That is, that is uh, our, our founding story is about, um, in a sense, our defying tyranny. And I think, in a sense, um, de- defying unlawful authorities is kind of in our, in our blood in a, in a certain sense. Um, but uh, nevertheless, that's the way the second commandment of the law um, Start, uh, that's the way the second table of the law starts. And uh, I actually wanted to kind of camp on that for just a moment. There is something about this commandment that I think is, is countercultural for us as 21st century Americans. Um, I've got a quote on the handout that I, that I just uh, handed out to you. This is a quote from 2000, over 2,000 years ago. This is a quote from Plato right, about the way he thinks um, democracies sometimes affect family relationships, right, and our attitudes towards family relationships. Listen to this. This is Plato. He says, when a democracy has drunk too deeply of the strong wine of freedom, then, unless her rulers are very amenable and give a plentiful draught, she calls them to account and punishes them. She would have subjects who are like rulers and rulers who are like subjects. These are men after her own heart whom she praises and honors both in private and in public. Right? So democracies oftentimes find uh, that it breeds an attitude among its citizens that, that, uh, that is very ready to defy authority. 
And then he says, interestingly, that that can bleed over into, into private households as well. He says, by degrees, the anarchy finds a way into private houses or homes. The father grows accustomed to descend to the level of his sons and to fear them. And the son is on a level with his father, he having no respect or reverence for either of his parents, and this is his freedom, right? Kids these days, right? Now, that's 2,000 years ago, but it might as well have been written from a certain perspective last week, right? And uh, I've included a quote by, uh, by a contemporary theologian, Peter Lighthart, who we quote uh, with some frequency here, uh, in a short book he wrote about the Ten Commandments, where he makes essentially the same point that Plato makes, but about contemporary society rather than an ancient Athenian society. Lighthart writes, that's the second quote on your outline, the fifth commandment seems stuffily conservative. Right. In our topsy-turvy times, it's countercultural. We late moderns confess the authoritative 1960s creed question authority applied in the first instance to the family. Uh, we believe in equality. We don't defer to our betters because we find it offensive to think we have betters. We believe in the self-made man, the buffered self, the isolated individual. Every man is an atom who has molded himself from the dust. A choice is the foundation of all moral action. Nearly an act is, uh, uh, nearly, an act is uh, sanctified, nearly every act, I believe I type, typed that wrong, nearly every act is sanctified by consent, the magic word of liberal order. And so that's the end of the quote, right? So there is something kind of countercultural about, uh, about this commandment, right? We, we don't tend to be those that, that readily uh, uh, acknowledge authorities or, or think that acknowledging authority is good. If you doubt that, just think about how many uh, modern television TV shows, films, and books, uh, the, the, think about how many of those there are where the plot line revolves around children kind of growing up and, and, and moving beyond the restrictive rules of their parents, um, right? It seems like there's a, it's almost every Disney film I've seen in the last 10 years kind of has that, has that sort of plot line, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of films that are like that. Um, I remember a couple, uh, not here, not too, about a year ago, my family and I, we read, uh, uh, Louisa May Alcott's Little Women Out Loud to Each Other in the Evenings, which was wonderful. I hadn't read that since I was, uh, since I was young, and it was wonderful to have the kids read it again for the first time. But uh, it was interesting reading the book, if you know the main character, Joe, who's kind of Louisa May Alcott's uh, stand-in, right? She's very expressive and very, uh, uh, very, very outspoken and very willful and so forth in the first part of the book, and this often gets her into trouble, right? And then the second half of the book involves her uh, coming into a certain uh, maturity, right? Learning to settle into the, uh, the roles that have been assigned for her and to the place that she's, been, that, that she's uh, found in life. She gets married. She starts raising children of her own and so on. Um, I heard an interview not uh, shortly after we finished that book uh, on the radio with somebody who, who had grown up with that book. They had read it dozens of times as a child, and they were uh, reflecting on it. And their thoughts were, you know, I they were talking about how beloved the book was to them, and they were thinking back on it. And they said, you know, I loved, as an adult, I really loved the first half of the book where Joe is so expressive. Um, and then in the second half of the book where she settles down, right, and just settles into to, to adult life and, and, and kind of tames herself, I hated that. That's terrible, right? As an adult, that just ruined the second half of the book for me, right? And so I think there is a sense in which we, we, we value expressing ourselves and getting out from underneath uh, uh, the rules that other people prescribe for us and, uh, and so forth. But nevertheless, um, I've included a second quote by Lightheart here. Um, in spite of all of that, the fact is that Scripture doesn't treat parental... Uh, well, th it's true that Scripture, looking at that quote by Lightheart, Scripture does not treat parental authority is absolute. 
in some circumstances, parents and I would say other authorities must be disobeyed. Yet, in the Bible, the overall view is that authority is good, and parental authority especially is the original form of authority. Right? And so uh, with, with that in mind, I think it, it behooves us to look at what the Fifth Commandment has to say about authority and, uh, and how we should honor it, and that's what we're going to be, uh, to be doing this morning. Before we jump into any of this, I want to kind of acknowledge something. Um, this commandment is liable to have a certain degree of sensitivity attached to it. Um, you know, I don't know everybody's stories, but I think it doesn't require much imagination at all to, to think that there are people in this room who, uh, and certainly people in our lives that we know, who may have suffered um, abuse at the hands of parents, if not outright abuse, at least significant mistreatment or, or neglect. And uh, oftentimes, there, even if you weren't, a res even if you didn't suffer those things in any egregious form, there can still be ongoing emotional struggle well after you've left the home, especially if you came from a home that was uh, broken or dysfunctional in some kind of significant way, as so many people are now, uh, as, so, as was the case with so many families now. Um, Lightheart, in that same article that I quoted from a little bit ago, acknowledges that. I don't have the quote for you, but he says, Today's families are assembled from the blistered shards of broken households. Um, children are yours, mine, and ours, and grow up to, with multiple fathers and stepfathers, mothers and stepmothers, a father and a father, a mother and a mother. While most of America's children live with two parents, a quarter of them do not, and in some communities the situation is even worse. And he acknowledges the African-American community where three-quarters of the children, at least at the time of his writing, were born um, outside of marriage, right? Now, he doesn't cite where he gets that statistic from, but, um, but uh, nevertheless, I know that the that the statistics are, are fairly worrisome about, uh, about that community. So I want to acknowledge that, that this commandment can have a significant degree of emotional sensitivity for people. Um, and uh, I'll have some things to say about that at the very end, right? Um, if you look at the overview um, eight, I want to talk a little bit about some pastoral challenges that sometimes come with thinking about this commandment. Um, and it doesn't just have to do with parental authority. It can, you can have uh, difficult relationships to, uh, to, to, you can have had very traumatic relationships in relation to state authority, to church authority, and to, and to other kinds of authority. And I'll have some things to say about that when we get to eight. Um, for, the, for the moment, though, I just want to acknowledge that and, uh, and, and say let's, we'll, we'll talk about that at the end with the time that we have left. But uh, for this morning, what I'd like to do first, before we jump into all of that, is, is talk about the, uh, I provided you with an overview on the first page of your handout there. Um, I want to talk about the commandment itself briefly, just look at the, the wording of it in Scripture. I want to say something about its position in the Decalogue, where it comes in the, in the order of things in the, in the Ten Commandments. I want to talk about its scope, right? Who, who is it talking about? What, who, what, um, how wide does it apply, if I could put it that way? The, the spoiler alert, the, it, it, it extends to the, the commandment encompasses our duties to superiors, to inferiors. It encompasses our duties to everybody, basically. And uh, the way our confessional documents uh, break it down is it says there are people in, a, in positions over us, superiors. There are people in positions, there are people under our authority, inferiors. And there are people who are on par with us, right, who don't have any special authority over us or, or us over them, equals. And the commandment touches on our relationship to all three of those people, right? That's its scope. 
Um, and then I want to talk just a little bit about our duties to each of those groups of people, right? Our duties to those over us, our duties to those under us, and our duties to, to those who are equal to us. That's four, five, and six. Um, in section seven, I want to talk about the promise that's appended to this commandment. This is the only commandment with a, pro- well, the, not the only, but the first commandment with a promise specifically attached to it, right? Paul says that in the New Testament, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And then he goes on and talks about that promise. And so I want to talk about the promise that's attached to this commandment, and then a little bit about some of the challenges that might be associated with this uh, commandment for, for all of us, okay? So that's, uh, that's where we're going. Um, the handout that I've given you just walks back through that overview and it, uh, it includes some, uh, some uh, quotes that I want us to look at together. And uh, I'll just go ahead and tell you, I'm leaning fairly heavily on, the, on our larger catechism here. I think uh, if somebody could produce a more extensive analysis of this commandment than, uh, than our larger catechism is, has done, I don't know who they are. Right? It's, uh, our larger catechism is, is almost exhaustive in, in teasing out all the different things that, uh, that this commandment involves and implies. And uh, I think it's, it's uh, valuable for us to just look at that and think through it uh, together and, uh, and, and, and benefit from the work that, uh, that those authors did. So I'll be, I'll be looking in several places along the way at the, at the text of our larger catechism especially and, and looking at some of the things that, uh, that it tells us this commandment involves. Okay, so that's where we're headed this morning. Uh, sound good? Okay, that's good because I don't have anything else planned. Okay, that's, uh, if, if that did not sound good, I'm in trouble. Right, so at any rate, um, the commandment itself... Um, you know, there are admonitions to obey parents, and there's warnings about disobedience to parents all over the Bible, right? It's not, it doesn't occur in just one or two places. It's everywhere. Um, in the Old Testament, especially if you go to the book of Proverbs, right, constantly in the book of Proverbs, right, uh, you, you hear a, a father talking to a son, urging his son to obey his commandments and so forth. So, and, and that's not just the book of, and then if you go elsewhere in the book of Proverbs, you find uh, you find warnings about or not, not warnings, but, but uh, calls for children to be obedient to parents. Um, you also find in various places in the Bible warnings about disobedience. And uh, in some cases, uh, disobedience to parents is actually connected with, uh, with, with God's judgment and with, uh, and, and, uh, and with the end of the age, right? There's places we'll have cause to look at this in a little bit. Um, actually, I don't know if I included, uh, included it on, on the outline here, but there are places in the New Testament where uh, Paul specifically says that one of, the, one of the things that you can see as the end of the age uh, draws near is, among other things, among other sins that might proliferate, there will be disobedience to parents, right? Um, in Romans 1, at the end, when Paul talks about, uh, about God giving over those who were rebellious, uh, give, giving them over in judgment to their sin, right? One of the things that he... Uh, uh, talks about there is disobedience to parents. So disobedience to parents is not just warned against, but it's also described as one of the sins that God will give us over to as an act of judgment if our hearts are rebellious and hard towards him. So there's commands to be obedient to parents and to authority all over scripture, but there's two primary places uh, in the Old Testament that you see this. Um, Lauren talked about this last week. Uh, one, one of the places is in Exodus, the other is in Deuteronomy, right? Exodus is the, 
place where God gives the Mosaic law for the first time, right? And then what's Deuteronomy? Why, why do we see, why is the other primary place where you'll find the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy? What's going on in Deuteronomy? Yeah, they're about to enter the promised land and Mo Moses is reminding them of the law, right? This is a new generation that did not come out of Egypt, right? The generation that was at Sinai has died off. Moses is reading the, all except Joshua and Caleb, Moses is uh, reading them the law again as a reminder before they go in and, and, and take the land, right? And so um, you find the Mosaic command to honor your father and mother in, in both places, in Exodus 20, in the middle of the original 10 words, right? Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that lo the Lord your God is giving you. And then in Deuteronomy 5.16, you hear a repetition of it. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And, uh, John Frame in his, uh, in his um, Doctrine of the Christian Life, which you've heard Josh refer to in, in previous weeks, and I consulted um, in, uh, in getting ready for this week as well, uh, which I'll have more to say about that at the, at the end of our time together. It's a wonderful book. I'd commend it to you, but it's almost humorous. He, he actually, in a footnote, like the, he, he went to the trouble of including this and it made it to publication. It's in, in the printed work. In a footnote, he noted that in the Deuter Deuteronomic version, the, the, the blessing is uh, the same as the Vulcan blessing in Star Trek, right? Live long and prosper, right? which as a Trekkie uh, warmed my heart a little bit, right? So... At any rate, but those are the two places that uh, those are the two the two primary places in the Old Testament that the uh, that the commandment appears, and then you find it uh, quoted specifically in the New Testament in the Pauline epistles, um, Ephesians six one uh, to three, which I mentioned earlier. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Um, uh, that's Ephesians. That's not the whole. Of it, that's specifically verse three, um, Ephesians six one to two is uh, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right, and then he follows that up immediately with this quote: Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you. So that's uh, one of the most explicit quotations of this commandment in the New Testament, carrying it directly over into the life of the church, right, and urging the children in the covenant community, especially, to listen to that commandment. And then Colossians 3.20, uh, similarly, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Okay, right. so, so much for the commandment itself. Um, I wanted to say something about just where we find this in the Decalogue, right? where this occurs in the Ten Commandments. Um, and just a couple of points here. Um, first of all, and I'm indebted to Lightheart for this observation, but there's something really beautiful about this commandment. This doesn't so much have to do with its position in the Decalogue, but just when you consider the commandment in itself, there's something beautiful, um, theologically beautiful about this commandment. In a sense, it's a miniature picture of the life of God, and it's a miniature picture of, of God's work in redemptive history, right? All contained in this tiny little, uh, little commandment. Uh, Lightheart writes, this is the first quote under number two, the fifth word unveils the inner life of God. Right? The son honors his father, trusts his father, submits to his father, hears his father, gives the words of his father weight, submits to his father's discipline. But this isn't the end of the story. In the same moment, the father turns the tables to glorify the son, honor, honors him, listens to his prayers and pleas. 
That is the final truth of family life. Young children glorify parents while parents raise their children to glory. Adult children honor their parents materially while parents praise their children. In keeping the fifth word, family life comes to reflect the mutual honor that is the crenulated communion of the living God. Right? Uh, so it's fascinating. There's a, there's a sense in which within the very inner Trinitarian life of God, there's, a, there's a, an honor and submission going on between father and son by which son submits lovingly to his father and the father uses his authority to elevate and exalt the son, right? And then that works itself out in history too. This, when Jesus came, Jesus is constantly saying, I came to do the will of my father in heaven. And what is the will of his father in heaven? It's to, it's to elevate and to glorify the son. So there's this beautiful... Um, uh, there's this beautiful father-son relationship and family life, right? The commandment that we participate in that same kind of honor and submission structure within family life is one of the ways that we come to uh, reflect the, the, the very life of God in our everyday lives, right? And of course, it's not limited to family life. It's, uh, it extends to the ways that we uh, relate in, in other s places where there's authority structures as well. But it's a beautiful expression of the very, the very life of God and the very inner heart of the Trinity, which uh, I think is a wonderful thing to kind of keep in mind and in the background as we, as we think about all of this this morning. Um, a little bit more about its position within the Decalogue itself, though. The commandment, um, you could think of it as, I know I said at the beginning that it, that it begins the second table of the law, and I think that's true, but you could also think of it as concluding and summarizing the first table of the law in a very real sense. If you look at Malachi 1.6, which is on your handout, a son honor his, honors his father and a servant his master, this is God speaking, if then I am a father... Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. Right? So we know this. God speaks of himself as a father throughout Scripture. Right? And so the command to honor your father and mother, while it does apply to earthly parents, right, it also applies first and foremost right, and preeminently to our heavenly father. Right? We're called to honor our heavenly father. Right? Well, how do we do that? The first table of the law is talked about how we do that. Right? So there's a certain sense in which the fifth commandment could be viewed as a summary, right? Uh, the, those first four commandments, those are all ways in which you honor your heavenly father, right? You could look at it as a summary and a, and a, and a, and a conclusion of the first table of the law. In fact, Lightheart actually argues that, that it's more properly thought of as the first table than the second, right? Uh, but you could also think of it as uh, introducing and summarizing the second table of the law, right? Uh, we, it certainly introduces it. That's the way we traditionally read it, right? It, it, it transitions us from thinking about the way we relate to God to thinking about the way, way we relate to other people. You could also think of it as summarizing the second table of the law, right? Um, that'll come out more when we get into the, the, the nuts and bolts of it here, right? But the, the second table... I'm sorry, the, the commandment deals with everything we owe to those above us, those equal to us, and those underneath us, right? And that's everybody, right? Everyone stands in one of those three relationships to you, right? So it's basically telling you to do what you should do to every other person out there, right? And what does that look like? You could almost look as the, at the remaining commandments as a commentary on what that looks like in a certain sense, right? So there's a way in which I think all of the second table of the law is kind of contained within the first one in, in, in seed form as well. So you could look at it as a, 
as an introduction to and also in a sense a summary of the, the second table of the law. So I think that's why the fifth commandment is this perfect, it occurs where it does. It's this perfect bridge between the first and the second. It summarizes the first, it transitions us to the second, and in a sense it summarizes the second as well. Right? Um, it's kind of the concluding statement on the first and it's the opening statement on the second at, the, at, at exactly the same time. It's a bridge between the two. And um, I also think it, it, as such, it reminds us that love of God and love of our neighbor are, are linked with each other. Remember, that's the way Jesus summarizes the law. The first table he summarizes is love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second table he summarizes is love your neighbor as yourself. And the Bible makes clear that these are intimately linked, right? They're, they're very, very closely uh, hooked together. Nobody makes that point better than John, right? 1 John 4, 20 to 21, right, which is, I've included for you. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Right? And I think the fifth commandment occurs where it does in, in part because it links those two. It, it, draws to, it draws together the first table and the second table and kind of connects them in this one commandment to honor um, our fathers and our mothers. And, uh, and so it, it, it connects those two parts of the law together and reminds us of this New Testament emphasis that love of God and love of neighbor are, are linked up with each other. Right? Um, so those are some of the things I wanted to say just about the position of the commandment in the Decalogue. Um, I want to go on and talk about the scope of the commandment, but, but let me stop for a second. Any questions or comments before we keep going? So that I can get a sip of coffee. All right, that's fine. If anybody wants to interrupt me, feel free to, right? And I'll create space for questions at the end, too. There'll assuredly be some, right? But um, so number three, the scope of the command. Um, and here I'm going to start looking at the larger catechism in particular. Um, question 126 in the larger catechism, what is the general scope of the fifth commandment? So the general scope, I'm just reading here, is the performance of those duties which we mutually owe in our several relations as inferiors, superiors, or equals, right? So there's what I have been said several times now, there's, there it is directly in the language of our larger catechism. The larger catechism views this commandment as, as urging us to do everything that is required of us toward those who are in authority over us, those who are equal to us, and those who are under our authority. Um, and uh, I want to take a second and just talk about where they're getting that. Right? That, that uh, when you first read the commandment, you might think that's a stretch, right? Really? I mean, okay, maybe this urges us towards, uh, maybe this urges us toward not just obeying parents, but toward obeying other authorities too. But what is all this language of inferiors and equals? Isn't that just overreading this thing? Um, so I want to talk a little bit about their rationale for seeing this in this expansive way that they do. I think, I think one rationale for it is just the example of Jesus himself, right? Jesus taught us, if anything, to, to be careful of being overly restrictive in the way we think these commandments apply, right? I mean, if we have avoided killing people, that does not mean that we are fully in compliance with the sixth commandment, right? Jesus says it inc includes all forms of hate, right? 
and uh, it, it condemns even, even hateful speech toward our brothers and, and sisters. So there's that. So at one level, I think we just have to remember what Jesus taught us, that, the, that, that God commands our hearts here, and that um, what he's after here is, is our hearts in a very deep sense. So all the ways in which our heart might be resistant uh, to, to what this command is, uh, is, is urging on us, right? Those, those are the things that the command is, is, is trying to get at. But beyond that, I think we can say some other things, right? It, uh, first of all, the command includes not just our biological parents, right? Although it certainly includes those. It's probably the first and foremost, those are the people who are in view here, is our, our biological parents, our, our mothers and fathers, but it also includes everyone in authority over us, right? Everyone in authority over us. Um, <clears throat> and the catechism uses the language of superiors to talk about that, all superiors. And I think the idea here is that their authority ultimately comes from God, right? It's an extension of his authority. And we've already talked, God's authority, we've already talked about the fact that God's authority is the authority that a, a father has, right? God has a kind of fatherly authority over us, right? Our earthly fathers, their authority over us is an extension of and a picture of God's authority over us, and God's authority over us is, is he's our heavenly father. You guys, he, has a, he has a fatherly authority over us first and foremost. And then all authorities, not just our earthly fathers, but all authorities, all earthly authorities derive from God, right? All earthly authorities receive their authority from the same place, ultimately. I included on your handout here Romans 13.1, which is the classic statement of that. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Right? So every authority has been instituted by God. Right? So if all authorities come from God and God's authority is fatherly, there's a sense in which all other authorities are fatherly or parental in a, in a similar way. I don't mean that everybody's your parent, right? But that parents and all other authorities receive their authority from the same source, right? So the, the, which is God, right? So just as we obey our parents in the Lord, we're called to submit to all other authorities out of reverence for God too, which is, uh, I think, what Paul is getting at there. Peter does the same thing. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, okay, whether it be the emperor or governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, right? So there he applies it again specifically to uh, secular authorities, right? And he says it doesn't just apply to the, the highest of secular authorities, but everyone deputized by them, right? Everyone whose authority derives from them. Right. So it's certainly the commandment, if we're called to submit to parents out of reverence for God, right, who gave them their authority and put them in place over us, the same thing goes to all authority, for all authorities that we are under. All of those authorities ultimately come from God. Right. But then interestingly, um, the, there also is a du the catechism suggests that there's also this duty to, to, to honor equals, Right, it uses the language of equals as well. Right? And you know, there is a New Testament command to give honor to everyone indiscriminately, whether they're in authority over us or not. Right? Um, 1 Peter 2.17 is probably the classic statement of that. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Right? What does he mean by brotherhood there? Yeah, church, first and foremost, right? Uh, fear God and then honor the emperor, right? But at the very beginning of that, honor everyone, 
right? There's a certain claim to honor that everyone has on us. And uh, that w no matter what their relation to us, and we're called to, to give, and in the, if we're called to honor parents, right, if we're called to give honor to whom honor is due, which is, I think, the idea behind this commandment, then there's a, an honor due to all people, right? Not just to, uh, not just to those who are over us. Um, and I think the logic here is similar to the logic that we find with uh, those who are over us, right? All, all those who are over us receive their authority from God. And so we're called to honor them in the out of reverence for God, right? All the people around us, whether they're in authority over us or not, you know, bear God's image, right? They're God's image bearers. And so we're called to honor the divine image in them, right? We're called, called to honor the image of God in them the same way that we would honor, uh, as, as an extension of the honor that we would show to God himself, right? And so at that point... Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of honor that we, uh, that we owe to equals, right, out of respect and, honor and uh, love for God as well. And you know, last, the authors of the catechism also suggest that this commandment applies to how we relate to those under our authority. Um, you know, the, uh, and I think this is extremely important, right? This is not just a commandment for us to honor those who are over us, and to show honor to those who are equal to us, on par with us. It's also a commandment for us to honor those who are under our authority, to use the authorities God's given us right, in a way that benefits those for the sake of whom it was given. Right? We're called to honor those who are under us in an important way. Um, and I think you know, this provides an interesting way to think about abuse of authority. If you abuse your authority and use it to harm those who are under you, in a sense, you're, you're dishonoring your own office, right? You're dishonoring your own authority, right? You're, being dis you're bringing disgrace on the authority you've been given. You're being disgr bringing disgrace on the, on the office you're, you've been given. And out of respect for God and the authority he's given you, you're called to use that authority in the way he has called you to use it for the benefit of those who are under you, right? And I think this is a, just a beautiful picture of this in those two Bible verses that I produced for you at the, at the, on the handout, the last two verses under number three. Uh, Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28, maybe for the sake of time, we'll just look at that. But you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, um, I'm sorry, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? So, I mean, Jesus is explicit in that passage and the passage in John there that those who have been given authority are not to use it to lord it, are not to lord it over those who are under them, right? They use it as servants. Um, they're, use it, they're to use it for the good and for the benefit of those who are under them. And if they don't, that misuses the authority that they've been given. Right? So I think the confession, the catechism, very rightly looks at this commandment and says, out of respect for God and, and his authority, we're to honor all those who are over us, we're to honor all those who are under us, and we're to honor all those who are on par with us, all those who are equal to us. So the commandment, uh, the catechism suggests that the commandment calls us to, to perform our duty, right, to give what is owed to everyone who's, who who's, is related to us in those three ways, right, over us, under us, and equal to us. 
And uh, it goes on then and talks at length. There's 10 questions altogether in the, uh, in the larger catechism just about this commandment. It goes on and talks about all of these different, uh, all of these different relationships. And it starts, number four, with our duty to superiors. It starts with our duty to superiors. So what, what is the honor that we owe to the people who are over us? Let me just read this for a second, and then let's pick out some things um, that it talks about here. Uh, So what is the honor that inferiors owe to to their superiors? Question 127. Uh, The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to, defense, and maintenance of their persons and authority, according to their several ranks and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love so that they may be an honor to them and to their government. What jumps out at you there? I mean, obviously, it's calling us to obedience, but boy, it's calling us to a lot more than that, right? What are some of the things that jump out? Bearing with their infirmities, yeah. Um, what does it mean by that? Right. Yeah, to honor them. And not just to honor them, but to bear with them, to be patient with them, right? Um, to, to, to show them a certain kind of grace and mercy in the, in the presence of that, right? Yeah. Other things? Yeah. 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 And, and yeah, absolutely. And it'll talk about that, right? That they're, they're called to have certain virtues and graces, but it is interesting to the extent that they model for us what those virtues and graces look like. It's incumbent on us to, to do our best to imitate those, right? And that in a sense, that's one of the gifts that God gives us is, is, is authority structures, leaders, right? To the extent that they're doing their duty, right? And, and model for us what good behavior looks like. It's incumbent on us to follow those examples, that that's a good gift. Yeah. Yeah. Other things? Yes. Yeah, yeah, lawful commands and counsels. Yeah, it's interesting. It's careful here, isn't it, right? Um, it doesn't want to acknowledge that, the, that there's not an authority, there's not, a, there's not an independent authority to bind people's conscience beyond what God has given them the license to do, right? Uh, so they have, a, they have a fixed sphere within which they have authority and within which they can pass laws and, buy and, and, and command our behavior, right? When they overstep that, right, Obedience, uh, obedience is not necessarily owed, and I'll have a few things to say about that later on, right? But th- there is a, yeah, it is careful here. There is, a, there, is a, there is a proper limit to their authority. They don't have unfettered authority, right? They exercise that authority on God's behalf and within the limits he's set for them, yeah. yeah. I mean, look at the sins, right? Did you, was that a hand came? From the heart, yeah. Isn't that interesting? All due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, right? Heart, word, and behavior. Yeah, not just outward conformity, but an inward reverence, an inward reverence of heart. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's, uh, that's striking there, right? Um, 
Let me look for a second at the, at the sins, right? What are the sins of inferiors against their superiors? The sins of inferiors against their superiors are all neglect of the duties required toward them, envying at, contempt of, and rebellion against their persons and places and their lawful counsels, commands, and corrections, cursing, mocking, and all such refractory and scandalous carriage as proves a shame and dishonor uh, to them and to their government. Interesting. What, what strike? I mean, again, there's far more than just disobedience in view here, right? Yeah. What, what strikes you there? I know what struck me is, what is refractory and scandalous carriage again? Right? <laughs> That's what, what does that mean? It's kind of a more interesting way of talking about stubborn disobedience, right? Carriage is the way you carry yourself, right? And refractory and scandalous is, uh, re- refers to refractory. Me- it's kind of like obstinate. It means that you're, you're, uh, you're, you're unwilling to receive correction, right? You're stubbornly disobedient. And obviously being scandalously disobedient is being uh, disobedient in flagrant ways, right? But yeah, there's, there's a lot more than, uh, than, just, uh, than just disobedience in view here. Yeah, Matt? <laughs> Uh, no comment, right? No comment. I do think, you know, I'll, I'll make a general comment. I do think that we shouldn't have a, that, that, uh, that while I don't think it's wrong to speak out against governmental abuses and while there's space created for that, right, I do think our, our culture in the church should be not marked by that, not marked by by, um, by horribly, by, by character assassination and by, and by cruel or abusive things that we say about our political leaders, right? Again, that's not to give political leaders a pass as if to say that they uh, can do whatever we want and we, we're not permitted to speak out against them. That's absolutely false. And I think that uh, it, we owe it um, uh, to them and to, and, to, and to others to speak when they're abusing their authority, right? If they're misusing their authority or if they're going beyond their, their, their lawful, uh, uh, the, the, the limits that God has lawfully set for them. But, and I'll have more to say about this in a bit, but I do think that our speech shouldn't be marked by love, by, I'm sorry, shouldn't be marked by love, shouldn't be marked by, di- shouldn't be marked by disrespect or hatred or contempt, right? And it's easy for that to happen in our, in our culture. And uh, I won't comment on whether any particular case of it is, right? But, um, but I, I do think that we should, we should try to set a better example for, our neighbors on when it comes to things like that, since there's so much of a culture of that today. Right. Any other controversial things we want to talk about in relation to that? Um, let me say something. There's a number of different things here. Um, one of the things that John Frame emphasizes in his uh, commentary on this, on this passage is that uh, when it comes to duties to our superiors, um, when we're talking about parents especially, when we're talking about parents especially, that one of the duties that we have is financial obligation, is financial support when our parents are older. Uh, and he talks about the fact that that's, uh, that's an explicit New Testament emphasis. If you remember, uh, I, and I gave you two verses that talk about that there, uh, Mark 7, uh, 9 to 13. Remember, this is one of the things Jesus criticized the Pharisees for. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles your father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, 
then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do, right? So there was this tradition among the Jews at the time that uh, the, the Pharisees had a tradition that if you, the money that you would have used to support your parents when they were old and when you were an adult, if you gave that to, the, to God, right? If you gave that to God, if you essentially gave that money to the, to the church, although they wouldn't have used the word church for it, um, then you were excused from the obligation of supporting your parents. And Jesus looks at the, that, that you were excused from the obligation of giving that money to your parents. And Jesus looks at that and says, this is horrible, right? You, uh, you are making void the word of God by your tradition, right? So what is Jesus? He views this as a violation of the fifth commandment, right? And so financial support of parents when they come to need financial support um, is, uh, in Jesus' eyes, part and parcel of the fifth commandment here, right? And Frame, um, he, he zeroes in on the language of gratitude in the, in the catechism. He says that we're to uh, uh, have prayer and thanksgiving for them. And he says uh, one of the ways we can show thanksgiving for our parents especially is, uh, is through financial support when there's, when there's call for financial support, when they're older and in need of financial support. Um, and he talks about, the, uh, Paul does the same thing, that, that verse from 1 Timothy 5, 4 to 8. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God, right? So Frame emphasizes that when it comes to parents especially, uh, one of the duties that we have when we get older is uh, provision for them when they're you know, unable to provide for themselves. And of course, there's comparable things in, when it comes to other authorities, right? We are responsible to pay taxes to the secular authorities. We're responsible to tithe to the church, and a similar sort of uh, financial responsibility exists towards, towards parents when we get to be older and when they, uh, when they also get to be older and are in need of support. Um, let's talk for a few minutes, and it's going to have to be just a few minutes, about uh, duties to inferiors for a second. Um, what is required of superiors toward their inferiors? Um, let me read these together, and then we'll, then we'll, talk, about, we'll talk about what jumps out at you here. It's required of superiors, according to the power that they receive from God and that relation wherein they stand, to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors, to instruct, counsel, and admonish them, countenancing, commending, and rewarding such as do well, and discountenancing, reproving, and chastising such as do ill, protecting and providing for them all things necessary for soul and body, and by grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage to procure glory to God, honor to themselves, and so to preserve that authority which God has put upon them. And then the sins of superiors are, besides the neglect of the duties required of them, an inordinate seeking of themselves, their own glory, ease, profit, or pleasure, commanding things unlawful or not in the power of inferiors to perform, counseling, encouraging, or favoring them in that which is evil, dissuading, discouraging, or discountenancing them in that which is good, correcting them unduly, carelessly exposing or leaving them to wrong, temptation, and danger, provoking them to wrath, or any way dishonoring themselves or lessening their authority by an unjust, indiscreet, rigorous, or remiss behavior. Okay, go memorize that, right? right. What jumps out at you here? 
Um, one of the things that jumps out at me is that this list is longer, right? This list is longer. I think I counted it up, right? And I think there are more individual sins uh, mentioned here when it comes to superiors and their, their obligations to inferiors than there are in the former case, right? And I think there's also a longer list of obligations, right? So the, uh, what, what jumped, one of the things that jumps out at me is the catechism, in a sense, puts the more burden on the superior than the inferiors. Inferiors have obligations to their superiors, that's true, but the superiors have a, a larger set of obligations and there's a larger set of sins that they're liable to. Right, at least in the minds of the people who wrote the catechism. But what what jumps out at you here in this list? Yeah, Alyssa. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot here. I think it's good for us to read and, and, and remind and, and, and look at these kinds of things. Yeah, the comm- there is a commandment for children to honor their parents, but I think it's legitimate for us to feel the weight of that, right? I think Mike's comment that you know, there needs to be virtues and graces for those under us to imitate, right? Um, uh, they're called to imitate those, and we need to make sure they've got something to imitate there, right? Yeah, and so I think, I think it's a wonderful reminder of what our conduct toward children especially, that's obviously primarily in view here, but toward anyone who's under us, if we have people we manage at work um, or, or any, anyone in those kind of circumstances, I think it's a wonderful reminder of the kind of things that uh, the kind of conduct we need to be demonstrating. Yeah, what else? Yeah. 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 Is really interesting, isn't it? It's a beautiful description of what we should want our leaders to be and what if we're in leadership positions we should try to be in front of those who we're in leadership positions over, right? Grave, wise, holy, and exemplary, right? It's a beautiful, beautiful description of what kind of conduct we should want for ourselves and what kind of conduct leaders should uh, should, should have towards those who are under them, right? Yeah. Anything else? Let me, I've got as I, uh, five minutes, and so let me do this for just a second. Um, let me rush, I'm gonna, I'll leave it to you to read about our duties to equals, right? I'll leave it to you. I would commend you to read those, uh, those, um, uh, those uh, obligations that the, that the, catechism talks about. Let me talk, jump to number seven and talk about the promise, right? Uh, question 133, right? What is the reason annexed to the fifth commandment, uh, the more to enforce it, right? The reason annexed to the fifth commandment in these words that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee is an express promise of long life and prosperity as far as it shall serve God's glory and their own good to all such as keep this commandment, right? So the commandment is long life and prosperity upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. Um, and just a couple comments about this really quickly. This is the covenant blessing, 
right, that was attached, that was given to Israel in the Old Testament, right, a, a promise of long life and prosperity in the land that God was bringing them to, right, this is, this is the covenant promise in a certain sense. And uh, it's not unique to this commandment alone, right? This, is, this, this promise is connected to the whole of the Mosaic Law, right? If you look, I won't read it for the sake of time, but if you look at Deuteronomy 5, 32 to 6, 3 uh, there, uh, these same promises are, are held out to Israel in Deuteronomy, not just in connection to the, to the fifth commandment, but in connection to the entire Mosaic Law, right? Uh, in connection to their obedience to the entire Mosaic law. I think it's, uh, it, it appears um, in the fifth commandment in the Decalogue for some of the reasons we talked about earlier. The fifth commandment brings together and binds up and summarizes uh, the, uh, the, the, the whole law. Right? In a sense, it occurs right there in the middle. Right? It occurs right there in the middle in a commandment that kind of brings together and condenses within itself all of the commandments that proceed and, uh, and, and flow after it. And so I think that's part of the reason that, that God attaches the, the commandment to or the promise to uh, this particular commandment. Um, of course, uh, this might seem strange to us because uh, we know some righteous and exemplary people who lead very short lives, don't we? And uh, we also know some wicked people who enjoy very long life, don't we? Um, and we're not the first to notice that. If you've read the Psalter, right, uh, the psalmist notices that a lot, right? One of my favorite psalms that asks that question is Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, where Asaph basically just about gives up. He says, you know, I don't know what the point of trying to obey the law is anymore. The wicked prosper, right, and uh, the, the righteous seem to suffer. Um, so Psalm 73 addresses that question, right? What, what's the ultimate answer? Why, why do we see that? Does that mean this promise is null and void, right? How would we respond to that? Yeah. God is sovereign, right? Has his purposes. Yeah, the, the catechism says that, right? That it's a promise um, so far as it will serve God's own glory and their own good, right? Yeah, um, to all such as keep this commandment, right? Yeah, God has his purposes for, for, for unfolding things the way that he unfolds them. Right? And I think we can say a little bit more than that. The, in Psalm 73, what is a, how does Asaph comfort himself, right? He looks forward to the day of the Lord, and he says, however things are right now in the day of the Lord, this, all the scales will be balanced, right? And uh, the wicked then will see... Um, their prosperity brought to an end and the righteous will be exalted. And so the psalmist looks ultimately to the day of the Lord and we can do the same thing, right? Uh, uh, and of course, for us, we know that how, how are the covenant blessings ultimately realized for us? It's not through our obedience to our Father, but through Christ's obedience to his Father, right? He obeyed not just this commandment, but the whole of the law perfectly and uh, was as a result of that exalted, right? Yes, Matt. Yeah. Last, yeah. So I just wanted to say thank you for the gospel preparation and also just for confirming the the current environment. The current environment, sure. Yeah. How do we how do you draw the line? Where do you determine 
Yeah. So if I can rephrase that question, can I in 30 seconds give you an, a robust political theory? Right? <laughs> no. I hear you. How do, we, how do we know when, what are the proper limits of authority? How do we know when government has crossed that authority? And uh, what, how do we know when government or any authority has crossed the line? Right? And then what do, we, what do we do in those circumstances? Yeah. Um, let me say one thing. Right, and, and I'll say this, and then I do need to stop, right, because it's, uh, it's 10.15. But I, I would just say this, and this does actually relate a little bit to what I wanted to say under number eight, right? There's lots of things I wanted to say under number eight, but I'll, I'll curtail it a little bit. Um, you know, I think that uh, I think this commandment absolutely acknowledges that there are those who suffer. I think the whole question about the whole list of sins of, of superiors towards inferiors acknowledges there is suffering at the hands of, uh, of, of authority figures. And I think to use this commandment in any way to silence the voice of those who have suffered abuse or neglect and hurt and pain at the hands of any authority, whether that be parental, church, or, or civic, right, is it would be wrong, it would be a misuse of this commandment. Um, I, I think that, uh, I'd say two things. I think it's incumbent on us not to have a spirit of, whatever we do, I think it's incumbent on us not to have a spirit of hate Right? I think that it's legitimate for us to seek justice and so forth. I think we need to avoid having a spirit of hate. Right? And that if we're called to suffer at the hands of authorities, to look at that in a certain sense as an opportunity for us to imitate Christ, who did the same thing, right? and turned the other cheek and prayed for his persecutors and did not open his mouth. Right? That said, I think it's, it's legitimate for us to seek a redress of our grievances. And I think one of the mercies of God is that he's given us multiple authorities. Right? There's authorities in the church, there's authorities in the state, there's authorities in the home, there's authorities in the workplace and so forth. I think one of the things that we can do practically is if we think that there's a, been a miscarriage of, of justice and, a, and an abuse of authority, not to leave that up to our own judgment, but to seek counsel from other people, right? Um, there's a variety of authorities. I think that's a good principle, right? We shouldn't be wise in our own eyes. Um, there are a other duly constituted authorities seek their wisdom and bring those problems to their attention and, and don't just be wise in our own eyes, right? And I think that's all I can say in 30 seconds, right? Okay, let me stop there and let me pray so that we can, uh, we can end for this morning. Um, and thank you all for your attention and your, and your thoughts, right? Um, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your law, for this opportunity to look um, just briefly at this uh, very rich commandment. Uh, Father, we thank you that um, for the authorities you have put in our lives and the blessing that they are to us. Um, we know that they will ultimately fail us, even as Pastor Josh was preaching last week. But we thank you that we have a great high priest and a great king, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has... Uh, who is the perfect example to us, not only of the exercise of authority, but of submission to authority, and not only of submission to authority, but of submission to unrighteous authorities. Uh, Father, we thank you for him, for the beauty of his character, and for all of the rich blessings and benefits that are ours through him, and for his willingness to share those things with us. And as we 
come to you now and worship. Help our hearts to be lifted up and to rejoice in uh, his graciousness towards us. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you all, um, and we'll see you next week.